if you talk about things in the context of the problems that you have, you start removing constraints. And by virtue of removing constraints, your performance ends up increasing as a side effect. Well, if you want to develop in your masculine form, your masculine frame, I'm going to tell you straight up, what sacrifices are you making? Like, how bad do you want it? And if you can be more comfortable in uncomfortable situations, now your brain is starting to believe in itself that, hey, we can do these hard things that we didn't think we could before. Everything that goes on in your life is trying to teach you how to be authentic. And when you live by your highest values, you're most authentic. The normal average person's desire is to avoid fear, to avoid anything that's uncomfortable, right? So I, I, I developed this tool, basically it's called the reversal of desire. So instead of the typical desire, wanting to avoid fear, I made them go right into the fear. I think we all want to be more effective humans. We, I want to be the most effective human that I can be. And, and to me, that means first, as you'll say, removing some of the things that we do um, that may be preventing us from being an effective human. So in this instance, how do I become more effective human, Trev? I'm going to throw this really, really general question out at you. I'm like, hey, man, where do you go with that? As far as, as, far as my ability to show up um, mentally, I'm trying to not I'm trying to give you as general a direction this as possible. Yeah. I, I lean on what some people might call a theory of constraint. In other words, a vast majority of the time, like vast, vast majority of the time, very few, if any people could use what you might call performance enhancement. Okay. People say, you say, I say, I want to get better. And that confuses the intervention. In other words, if you say, I want to get better at something, then you start to consider, make plans, and account for things that make you better at that thing, which makes a lot of sense. And I take the position that instead of trying to get better at stuff, you account for all the shit that makes you worse. Or I might say, taking your foot off the brake. So lots of Lots of people have situations where they want to get better at something. And if you ask, well, why do you want to get better at it in the correct way with an appropriate Socratic dialogue, it tends to amount to some negative thing in their life or their environment prompting them to get better. Okay. And having enough conversations and reading and even doing research on this sort of topic on a practical level, biggest bang for buck goes to assessing or identifying, assessing, and addressing the things that hold you back rather than attempting an intervention to try and make yourself better. I make very like discreet, hard lines between those two things. And to some audiences, I might call it a problem orientation versus a goal orientation. And I even have a podcast that I ranted about a long time ago where I I hate goals. I say, I hate goals. Why? Because so many people have problems to solve. And you can, you can argue semantics, but like, yes, semantics. What has more, like saying just semantics, I think kind of, I find it rather insulting because of the power language has. And, and so <laughs> if you say problem versus goal, it generates different behaviors for different people. 
saying that they mean the same thing, you can argue on a philosophical level, on a behavioral level, very different things happen. And if you talk about things in the context of the problems that you have, you start removing constraints. And by virtue of removing constraints, your performance ends up increasing as a side effect. Dude, totally. Like everyone I work with, it's never a matter of trying to push the gas pedal further. It's like, yeah, take your foot off the brake. No, you, you, you end up revving the engine in park, man. Yeah. And you know what happens? Heart attacks, depression, suicide, disinhibition, drug, blah, blah, blah. Like revving the engine in park, you, you can call that anxiety or burnout or whatever. I get excited about this stuff for obvious reasons. So uh, uh, these revving the engine in park <laughs> keeps people from getting better. <laughs> if you just put it in drive, well, then things were just fine because people, people have the capacity. They, ha they have more or less the skills and you might call the drive to do all these other things that they want to do. And the problems that they have um, tangential to their goal, they end up stealing away energy and time, which then just makes this look even look even better or worse, depending on the sort of situation. Right. And so very, like, I can count the number of times on one hand where I, I could justify talking and intervening, helping someone intervene in their lives in the context of a goal orientation rather than a problem orientation. So right. few people have their, have their life together to the point where they actually can focus on getting better for the sake of getting better versus dealing with all of the constraints and then getting better as a side effect of that. Because you can, you can get to practical levels, you can get to practical levels of expertise just by dealing with constraints. And reaching what I would consider mastery does take a lifetime. And so that means assessing all of that stuff first to give yourself room. Trev, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now who are saying, I want to learn to think like this guy. I'm sure you spend time thinking about your thinking. What what are your suggestions, best practices? What what was the path to more effective again, I, I know thinking is subjective, but more effective processing of information, more effective, you know, to you to use my word thinking. And I don't know if you'll you'll question that term, but like, yeah. I find it appropriate. So I'll 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 save you, myself, and listeners some of the, maybe the roadblocks where I find or consider thinking a, a fabulous term to use in general conversation and an abhorrent term to use as a technical jargon in research. Good for daily conversation, bad for science. <laughs> yep. Different conversation to justify that. So use whatever you want. I can read between the lines and or, or, and, or I will clarify, which I will most likely clarify. The... So to you asked the question of how do I get started? How do I start thinking on purpose? Yeah. Yeah. More effectively. I mean, on purpose is obviously the, the, the foundation of it, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, what is so the, this? This opens an interesting jar of worms with things like, like critical thinking, perhaps, uh, where critical thinking really comes as a, as a function of life experience. Uh, which you can define in various different ways. But basically, 
you can define critical thinking as maybe maybe the the probability of solving a given problem, I suppose. Or people might say connecting dots. But what do you connect dots with? You connect dots with other things that you've done and experienced. So critical thinking as as a skill, I I think kind of distracts because then someone asks, well, how do I critically think better? But that to me asks the wrong question because people define critical thinking as a result, like critical thinking happens as a result rather than a cause. Sure. <laughs> if somebody connects dots, well, then you say they've critically thought, which I think distracts from, from the sort of behaviors. In, right. in any case, the, I, I make the honest suggestion of trying to assess something you want to get better at and then make an honest assessment of your environment, your social interactions, and the way you talk to yourself and start making a list of what of these things might actually slow me down. And the more exhaustive of a list you can make, which you can make one of all, all the things in my personal life, my social life, at work, the way I talk to myself or think, etc., that might obstruct my progress, that alone will then give you the opportunity to, to say, okay, maybe I start working on this thing a little bit. And when you do that and you start getting better at this thing now on accident, you start accumulating life experience and wisdom, which then ends up translating to what people might call critical thinking, etc. Oh, I have advanced education in varying topics and I made huge, huge, massive swaps in, in, um, I guess, arenas, right? Going from like molecules and magnetic resonance and lasers all the way over to macro-organismal behavior and, and, and language. And so I can take concepts and principles from over here and apply them here on accident. Just because I've gained skills here that look like they have nothing to do with this. But since I only have skills from here, I try and force the square pegs into a round hole and sometimes it works. <laughs> what drove the depth of thought, Trev? Because not everyone has the desire to pursue depth of thought. So, you know, oftentimes there's a North Star, there's a goal, there's an objective. I think that's why goals are important because like without a goal, sometimes it's really to give, easy to give up and you get kind of halfway there. Like, yeah, it's kind of getting hard. I don't want to do it anymore. What drove you to pursue the depth that you have? I think I can tell you, Mr. Pikulski, and it happened with a conversation I had with my mother as a small child, less than 10. Oh, I grew up, my father actually makes a, a very hilarious uh, uh, impression of me, but growing up, I asked, what's that? I just, what's that? What's that? What's that? I asked it a lot. <laughs> And I don't know, eight, nine years old, sitting in the back seat, my mother, bless her, had a nasty day, probably had a nasty day. And uh, I said, hey, mom, what's that? And she said, fucking figure it out yourself. And I know that she probably regretted saying that and that parents in general, were like, who she got worked up and said a thing she didn't mean, right? Back to our... And she probably hated herself for it for a little while, too, to draw from our previous conversation. And I actually, it shocked me, for one. But two, I said, 
okay. And then I did. <laughs> and and that, I had a couple of key moments like that in my life. Because saying that I like came up with it myself, like I, I think that it distracts from like really how much the environment ends up affecting the probability of these things. Where my mother in her exhausted emotional state said, figure it out yourself. And I just, okay. And that, and like I said, a few other things that stacked yeah. on top of each other, you know, lucky with mentors and things like that, uh, prompted that sort of behavior. Like if I want to figure out what this is, well, now you start end up back calculating kind of on your own. You, I just asked a lot of questions that annoyed a lot of people. And I ended up getting the people who got less annoyed by it. I asked more questions and it turns out the people that got less annoyed by it had more STEM philosophically related backgrounds. Do you think the emotion of that situation impacted the the, the scope, the uh, impact of it? 100% I do. Talk to me about that. Uh, Because us humans have, some people might call them instincts, I guess. We have these innate or hereditary aversions, like loud, squeaky noises, like very common, like Borderline 100% of humans, you would startle them and scare them if you made a particular tone at, at, a, at a particular sound, right? And so in that sort of situation, other than like learning the F word meant bad and that sort of low grumbling voice, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it, it did create an aversion. It did create an aversion, meaning if I wanted to say, hey, mom, what's that? What do I remember? Okay. I remember my exhaust, my like just beautifully exhausted mother, single mom, by the way, but like the whole deal. Okay. I remember that. Do it, like figure it out yourself. And so every time I go, what's that? Then I started saying, what's that to myself? Instead of saying, what's that to everyone else? And so that sort of situation, because of the emotion involved, I think, to use some old school language, stamped in that sort of behavior pattern as, as a side effect. So to avoid the punishment of my mother getting worked up, I just ended up doing this other stuff instead. And then the people that did tolerate my shenanigans, they ended up tolerating it because they operated the same way. And so it turned out, it turned into a somewhat of like an attraction by exclusion. I just, of all the people that I annoyed, I just got left with these other people that accepted it. (laughs) Now, having raised two children, one nine, one ten, I see, I didn't see this in myself as a child, but I see the the propensity to model, right? And I see their little chameleons, right? They're, They're little parrots where they hear somebody say something or they watch you do something and they're just gonna model. And so someone who's grown up you know, maybe with the, the lack of a father or the lack of a real father figure, somebody, you know, maybe someone who's, who's physically present but not mentally present, or yeah, just like no one who ultimately embodied this ideal male characteristic. One, how important is that? And two, how, do, how does a young person start to live that life other than like, yeah, go find per- a person, but it doesn't seem that likely. So in my 40 years on this planet, I haven't encountered that many people that I would say, yeah, that person is a uh, role model. Yeah, well, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that so I should preface this by saying my father is amazing. He's still in my life, and he modeled he modeled healthy 
comprehensive masculinity for me. We still talk weekly. Like I I love him. I honor him. That being said, I've also had other fathers in my life. I've had coaches, athletic coaches. I've had military leaders over my life. I I went to military academy for four years. I've had uh, business owners that have coached me. But one of the things I've done is I've read biographies of men that I, that, that embodied virtues fortitude, courage, honor, integrity, comprehensive masculinity, embodied it in their lives. And I studied their life. That's one. I also listen to podcasts and I, and I watch other men that, that hold, hold some of these core virtues um, and live them. They demonstrate them, right? So if I don't have access because I live in Podunk, Alabama, and, and there's no dads around, you know, I'm going to have to get creative and I may need to move locations like, how bad do you want it, man? Like, I mean, you're, you're a fitness guy. You, you, you had to make major sacrifices to manifest and, and cultivate your desires, which were to be a, a champion, right? You had to make sacrifices, meaning you probably had to move places. You had to subject yourself to routines and locations to see that through. Well, if you want to develop in your masculine form, your masculine frame, I'm going to tell you straight up. What sacrifices are you making? Like, how bad do you want it? I think the word that comes up for me that was ultimately my guiding light and seems to be absent in most people's life is purpose, right? So I knew what my purpose was. I don't know why I had a purpose, but I knew what it was. From from my experience, I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of men that I know that live with a, I shouldn't say that few, but not a huge number of men that are living with a very clearly defined purpose. Do you have a thought on how uh, one can start to unravel and decipher what their purpose might be? Yeah, but it's not sexy. It's not a sexy answer. I'm a huge, huge believer in the fact that most people despise the day of small things, so they never get promoted. Uh, Most people think their minimum wage job doesn't matter and say they do a shit job. And the problem with that is if you don't, do a good job there, I can't promote you. Mm-hmm. As a human, as your manager, I can't promote you because you're not cutting it. But in if there is a creator who wants to promote you, he can't feasibly give you the keys to the Lamborghini if you're miss if you're just driving the minivan recklessly. So a lot of people, if you want to find your purpose, you look around where you are, your small sphere, and you try to steward that really well. And if you could steward that really well, your influence and reach will expand and you'll start to run into more and more things that you're good at and people are going to seek you out because they see that you're a good steward. And it, but like it's almost like a by proxy situation where as you expand, you're going to bump into the right people, the right trail, right? It's going to, it's like you're going, if you just make it your mission, okay, today really matters. Now, I should probably add a caveat. I'm also a huge proponent of you need to be very curious and exploratory to find your purpose. Um, a lot of people, they pursue the purposes of their parents. I work, dude, I live in, I live in Palm Beach County. I, I meet with, weekly meet with families and the mom and the dad want something for the child and they push it on the child and the child does is not designed for it and the child doesn't want it. But the child has to contend with living the unlived life of the parents. Mark Twain. Mark Twain, right? So that's a a huge component. But 
when, when I work with kids, I'm like, look, man, like what naturally, like, what do you have like a natural interest in, man? You know, like, do you, I like building with my hands. Okay, well, like, let's explore that. A lot of people stop asking what they naturally organically like because they don't think it's sexy enough. They don't think it's, that's why everybody loves dirty jobs, by the way. Mike Rowe, if you read his, kind of his take, he, he's like, look, I just started realizing these people, these people didn't, they didn't like bump into their passion. They just stewarded, stewarded their jobs really well and they blew up and it kind of became a passion. Because you, you tend to get passionate about wh- where you spend your time, your money, your, your, what you pour your resources into. You tend to get more passionate about those things. That's Cal Newport as well. You know, be so good they can't ignore you. If you know Cal Newport, he's same same concept. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that guy, but that sounds right. I mean, so yeah, I think be curious, explore. Like I, I know most people, it's very rare. That you meet someone and they're five year old, they're, they're seven years old, and they go, I'm going to be a firefighter when I grow up. And they just have a deep desire to be a firefighter. They grow up, they become a firefighter. It's like, that's very rare. Most of us don't know what we want. So we have to explore, which takes courage. We have to be curious. And then we have to steward what is on our plate right now really well, like it really matters, like it really freaking matters. And if you'll do that, you will expand. And as you expand, you're you're going to bump into things that you're designed for. And you said that wasn't sexy. That was certainly one of the best answers I've ever heard. And it makes so much sense. And, and you'll get it owning a business. And I run into it owning a business is the people you hire is always the people that pay attention to the details. And so I have some belief around certain religious sects of the world that just really are detail oriented. And that's why these people succeed because from a time they're very young, they're told that you pay attention to details, even if it's something as simple as like, hey, on this day, we fast. On this day, we eat this. On this day, we, I don't know, we go to church. Like those rituals uh-huh. inculcate value. They shine the light on how important a habit and ritual is and allows people to start to embody this reality that, hey, these things matter. Because I find there's a lot of people who don't place a lot of weight on anything. They just kind of fly through life with no no uh, priorities, no value placed on really anything. Huh. There's one thing I want to tack on. I mean, I love what you're saying. It may, I, I totally agree. There, there's something, I, I tell this to my clients a lot. You, you live in Florida, so you're familiar with Publix, the grocery store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Everybody who's listening, if you've ever gone to a grocery store, which you have, if you stand 30 yards from the front door of the grocery store, the door will not open. You have to get within sensor range and then voila, the door's open right? A lot of us live life waiting, sitting back, waiting for a passion to hit us. We're waiting for the, 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 an audible from heaven. We're waiting for somebody to find us. Somebody's going to find our talent, you know? Well, no, 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 no. It, you, you have to flip it. You have to move into aggressive attack mentality. I'm going to go towards the door. I'm going to move in a direction. And as I do, doors will open because as I move, guess what? As you move forward, you're growing. You're not stagnant, right? As the more, the more curls you do, the bigger your biceps get. Your biceps aren't stagnant. They're growing. If you'll move forward, which is a faith step, it takes massive balls, yep. massive cojones to get off your butt and try again and to, to move into uncharted territory. 
to unfamiliar territory and to trust if I keep moving forward, the right doors open, the right connections will happen. I'll get favor with the right people. I'll, I'll meet guys like Ben, I'll meet whoever and boom, bada bing, doors start to open that you couldn't foresee back there where you were. That's, that's what I mean by expand, move forward, grow, have massive courage, take heart, you have it. I love that. And one thing I, I came to mind as you were speaking there is as you approach the door, whatever door that may be, your body is telling you, right? Your, your five senses are giving you a signal or, or, or creating an awareness. It may be a smell. It may be a feeling in your body like, hey, this is right or this is wrong. But most people miss the feeling because they're so disconnected from their body. And you know th- they spend their entire life trying to mute all the sensations. They don't want to feel the, the anxiety, the fear, the overwhelm, and, and they just disconnect. And so I think that is a big part of things that I teach is the world is telling you the direction. Like, you know where your house is, you know, like you, where your true home is, where you're supposed to be going home to the light, you know? And if you, if you learn just to pay attention to what your body is telling you, it's all right there, man. And that's something I've learned re- recently in the last, I don't know, maybe six years. It's like the answer is right there. The answer, you know, the answer, if you, if you truly learn to tune the radio dial, right? Using an old school reference that, you know, maybe some of our audience won't get, but. You learn to tune the radio dial. You know, if you, if you're one inch or one one millimeter off, you're not going to hit the you're not going to hit the station. But as you learn to tune the the radio, you can ultimately dial into the exact frequency you're trying to dial into and know exactly where you're going. And I think that metaphor holds true right now as we're walking up to a lot of different public stores, but nobody knows which door to go through because they're not they're not listening to the the pull or the call from within. Yeah, you know what eventually happens, man. I mean, I'm I'm sure some of your listeners are they're. they're they're high performers. They're, they're, you know, grade A type A types who are go-getters. And when you've got momentum, lots of doors start to open for you. And then it's about discernment. Then it's about just because I can doesn't mean I should. And that's where having a tribe of good people around you and, and practicing slowing down, praying, meditating, breathing, listening to some of your coaches as you make, try to make these wise decisions, you know, like, one of those people for me, honestly, is my wife. Like to me, the voice of God often sounds like my wife. <laughs> she's got she's got such wisdom. And I, I always make sure we're in agreement before I make big decisions. But we still walk towards doors. We still take risks. Like I'm gonna be taking risks till the day that I die. Because yeah. I want to grow. Love it, man. Love it. You're you're right. And uh for me, it's the concept of like if it's not a Heck yeah, or hell yeah, it's a hell no. You know, I think that's one thing I go by. Like, you got to be so all in. I said this to everybody is like, you need to just be, you know, need to feel like you're being ripped out of bed every morning. You need to be, have so much enthusiasm and passion. Otherwise, it's probably not right. Like, right. if you feel like you have to work, I mean, I get it. Sometimes you got to struggle through the discomfort, but I think the passion or the purpose lies in that thing that just feels so innate, it feels so like, I just love doing this. And not everyone gets to find that in their life. And I, I wish that for everyone. Like truly, I wish the ability to find that thing that, that when you get up, you're like, man, I just love being able to do this. I feel rewarded. I feel fulfilled. I feel like uh, I'm living my life's purpose by, you know, I, I can work 16 hours a day or 20 hours a day and it never feels like work. Yeah. You're, you're kind of leading into a big topic for me. And that's this, uh, this concept of passivity. You know, like in, in my view, casual men will be casualties. Casual people will be casualties. And, and like a good way to think of passivity is an individual that adapts a pattern of retreat and inaction. It's a pattern. 
It's a, they, they lack initiative as a pattern, as habit. Okay. And the, the truth is, it's my view, and I, I would urge your listeners to adopt this, that everything that matters to you is under siege all the time. I heard you say that. I love that. Your, your family, bro, your family is under siege. P- people are gunning for your family. Dudes are gunning for your girl. <laughs> Dark people are gunning for your children. Dark systems are gunning for your children. They want to they disciple your children, mentor your children. It's your job as a protector to be the shield. Your, your health is under siege, right? Like if you're not on top of that, it's going to go sideways real quick. Your vision, like if you have a vision for your life or a vision for your company, that's under siege. Visions don't happen by accident, right? So if you look at the opposite of passivity, we're talking about a retreat, a pattern of retreat and an action, then the opposite is assertiveness. Erat- I hunt down and eradicate all forms of passivity in my life. And I move into the fray voluntarily. I, I, I get ag- aggressive, aggressive about life. And people get, people don't like that word. Look, You'll like it better if you frame it like this. If you had a cancerous tumor on your breast, you would want your doctor to aggressively attack your cancer. Yep. If a man was breaking into your home tonight at 2 a.m., you would want someone to aggressively attack that person who's breaking in. There's a time and a place to be aggressive. Women are repulsed by passive men. Comprehensive men do not respect passive men. Passivity is never a good thing. It must always be resisted. Retreat is not an option. So if we want to grow, if we want to find our passion, you have to get aggressive. You have to move into attack mentality. If you want to grow as a man, it's not going to happen by accident. Just like Ben, you're all about fitness and and holistic health. You're not going to be a healthy person just one day because you wake up. Right. It's going to take strategy. It's going to take concerted effort, but it can happen if you'll shift your mindset. My whole goal is to help shift people's perception to operate out of a place of self-love and do these things that might seem like chores to some of us of eating healthy and exercising, but learning how to do them. Because if you love yourself, you're going to want to feel good. You're going to want to treat your body kindly and and, um, feed it good things and get good amount of sleep and manage your stress and, and eat real food that makes you feel good. Versus if you're always chasing for results and you make your happiness dependent upon results, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be what you want it to be. And so my whole goal is shifting people's perception, building self-awareness and helping them operate out of a place of self-love and, and taking the results out of it. Like, like a lot of people think, like I said, they're, you know, once they get once one day when they get this body, then they'll be happy. Then people will love them and then they can finally love themselves. But the problem is that that might not happen. You can control the input. You can't always control the output, right? For some people, you know, they can try really hard and they might see some, uh, some Im- improvement or gains or progress. But, you know, if their, if their goal is to look like an Instagram model, you know, 5% body fat, it just might not be in the cards for them. And that's okay. Like helping people realize like it's okay not to be this perfect body that they think they need to be. And so my whole goal is to shift or disrupt the fitness industry and make it more about empathy, self-love, and loving yourself on the journey instead of saying, okay, one day I'll love myself or one day I'll be happy once I get this body. And that's kind of my message now is helping people build that self-awareness. So there's a lot of focus on the mental and emotional side. So a lot of the stuff I preach or teach to people is 
more mindfulness approach first and foremost. So instead of focusing on diet and exercise right away, it's like, okay, what we're going to do today is we're going to make our bed. We're going to journal. We're going to do a gratitude list. We're going to learn how to meditate. We're going to learn some simple breathwork techniques. Uh, we're going to do some positive affirmations. And I feel like if people can focus and uh, overcome those mental and emotional hurdles and they, fo- and they, they learn how to do that, the physical stuff that we all know we're supposed to do becomes so much easier once they're in a, a good place mentally and emotionally and, and working on those things, instead of just trying to willpower your way, you know, to a new, you know, to a healthier lifestyle, uh, which a lot of people just can't do. They don't know how to willpower their way to do that. And so for me, that's kind of how I've changed or focused my approach over the years. And, and that's because I've done this, this experiment twice now and obviously done the work on myself too, to realize, um, the what working in is just as important or more important than working out. It's funny, Drew. You may not know this about me, man. When I stepped on stage in the Mr. Olympia in 2012, I was my dream, right? Is it what I want yeah. to do since I was 17 years old? And uh, I walked on stage and I said I was the most insecure I ever was in my life. I accomplished my life dream, but wow. it, it didn't change who I was. It, it, you know, everything you think it's going to become, you're like, oh, this is empty. So it, it then, and then allowed me to tr- turn that, that light bulb or that, that spotlight turn around on myself, right? And I tr- started sending this journey within. And for the last 10 years, it's been the same thing. It's this, this, I don't know if you know who Jim Rohn is that he's, he's passed away now, but Jim Rohn's a great motivational speaker. And he said, don't set the goal to become a millionaire for the money. Set the goal to, for the person it makes of you to achieve it. And that's, that's the message I'm, I'm conveying also in fitness is like, I want everyone to train. I want everyone to be able to follow a plan, but it's not for the end result. It's the person you're becoming in the process. So there's a, there's a great parallel between what we're doing. And I think uh, you get this, but our audience might not get it is all these, these mindfulness practices that you're promoting and, and uh, suggesting people do. It's not just some esoteric woo-woo suggestion to you're going to become a more spiritual person. It's literally changing the way your brain works, right? It's changing the pathways through which your brain sends these nervous transmissions. And instead of always going through the amygdala, which is going to drive up adrenaline, it's going to go through the prefrontal cortex and allow you to be more intentional in your decision-making, allow you to be more present, more conscious, and literally changing the way of life, man. So what you're doing... Uh, you know, you're, you're doing a phenomenal job. You're on the right track, man. It's so awesome to hear. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you're talking about it too. And this is kind of where my hope is that we shift to more of this type of approach instead of what it used to be 20, 30 years ago, where it's all about, you know, your body composition and what your physical looks look like. And so my hope is that this will change because I, the other thing I want to do is help those in the fitness industry become more empathetic and more understanding towards those who, you know, they might've been judgmental towards before thinking like, Oh, it's like, why can't you just eat less food and work out? And, and, and there's this division that happens because of that. So my hope is that people will be more empathetic because I'm coming from the other side of it. I used to be in that camp where I was always in shape thinking this is the most important thing and thinking it's easy and thinking it's simple. I want to convey to people like the old version of me, and say to them, like, we have to be more empathetic because no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And so I, I love that, you know, a lot of us have a lot of knowledge of learning how to, you know, fix people and transform people. But you can have all the knowledge in the world. But if you don't know how to relate to someone or if they don't feel like you value them or understanding them or hearing them, they're not going to be as willing to listen to your message until you, you know, they feel like you truly care about them. And that's kind of what Fit to Fit, to fit is all about is bringing more awareness of, of, look, it's a lot more complex than we think it is, right? Yes, you can. There is a, a physical side of it, which, yes, if everyone did it on a daily basis, they would see results. But why don't they do it on a daily basis? It's probably because 
it, it's so interconnected to the mental, emotional challenges or traumas that they had in their life that they don't quite yet understand why they do what they do. And so it's important for people to, like you mentioned, you know, meditate or be or uh, journal or do a gratitude list, which rewires your brain to help you get out of those thought patterns that, you, that you've been stuck in for years or decades. And if you can learn how to do that, then, like I said, the physical stuff becomes so much easier. But until you do that, you're just going to be, you know, spinning your wheels over and over and over again, trying this diet or trying that diet or taking this pill or doing that to hopefully fix you. But the key is to really just turn in and face your demons and do the hard work. I, I feel like the inner work is the hard work. <laughs> you know, working out and, and eating healthy food is nothing in comparison to going to therapy and learning, you know, what your triggers are and why they're there and, and doing that work because that work right there face, uh, forces you to face your demons and forces you to get very uncomfortable. And so these things that I mentioned, uh, making your bed, you know, taking cold showers, meditating, journaling, uh, positive affirmations, in my opinion, what they do is they help you, they help train your brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And if you can be more comfortable in uncomfortable situations, whether it's meditating, which is very uncomfortable for some people, or whether it's taking a cold shower for 60 seconds, which is very uncomfortable for people, then when it comes to, you know, diet and exercise, which is also very uncomfortable, now your brain is starting to believe in itself that, hey, we can do these hard things that we didn't think we could before. And that's why this stuff uh, that I mentioned on the mental emotional side is so important for people to do if they really want to truly transform and have it be long term. It's learning how to rewire your neural pathways, that, like just like you mentioned. Yeah, so true, man. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, you know, it seems as though step one of every fitness program should be exactly what we're talking about: is this concept of like, hey, you know, and I actually do this with with my coaching. Is the first month is never intense training. It's always about like. I need to increase the size of your body's stress, like what I call your stress bucket, like your ability to tolerate stress, because you're probably already stressed in so many different ways. If I just come along and negligently dump more stress on you, it's going to set you up for failure. So how then do I give you these interventions that we're talking about to ultimately just make it more, make your, your mind more capable of enduring those? I don't even know if it's, if it's like hard situations, but it's like unfamiliar situations, right? Like you've been in workouts, Drew, where like, what you may have called hard 10 years ago, now you're like, no, it's not hard. It's just a little uncomfortable, right? And But if it's unfamiliar, then it's that much more uncomfortable because you're not sure when you're going to die. You're like, oh, this thing could crush me at any point. So your brain's going to fight or flight and you can't repress it until you become comfortable with it. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful message, man. There's a lot of, lot of value in there. Yeah. And like we were talking about before, surfing, for example, <laughs> surfing is so uncomfortable for me because I didn't grow up doing it. And so every time I go out, like my brain is, it's a new experience every single time. And I kind of have to force myself to stay out there and really just get uncomfortable and suck, let myself suck at it. But I'm showing up. I think that's the key right there is showing up, doing your best. And it's going to be uncomfortable. But, you know, if you do it for days, weeks, months, consistently, years, consistently, then, like you said, you know, 10 years ago, what you thought was hard. Now it's like, oh, that's, that's might be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's so much more manageable, so much easier now. I think that's the key right there is, is getting yourself uncomfortable in small situations at first, right? Don't just be like, okay, I'm never drinking alcohol again, even though you've been drinking for the past 30 years. I'm never touching sugar again. You know, I'm going to work out seven days a week, like get shredded. Like people have these ambitions and I think it's cool. But to go from zero to 100 and maintain that is just not, you know, probably possible for the majority of the population. And so starting out with these small baby steps and, 
and, and, and getting those things out of the way first and foremost and having that become a habit or part of your daily life makes that other stuff so much easier. And so I love that you're talking about that. And I love that you're kind of shifting that because I, I, like I said, I feel like there's been a shift over the past 10 years where we're starting to realize there's more to transformation than just macros and calories and diets and supplements that are going to fix somebody's body because we all want the easy way out, right? We all want the magic pill. We all don't want to hear that we have to do the hard work. And that's that's the, the problem is like people people's perception is like, I, this, it's too hard, right? We built a lifestyle, um, you know, if you live in a first world country, for the most part, where every discomfort you have, we have a solution for it. We have something that will make you feel comfortable in those moments. Like if you have a headache, you can take a pill. You know, if you're cold, you can turn the heater on or you can take a warm shower. You have a soft bed, you have a car with soft seats and, you know, all the comforts you can imagine to take away any kind of discomfort. And now when people are trying to transform, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. You're going to have to do some freaking hard things. And if you don't know how to, you know, get to that point and, and, and that get to that new mindset and, and rewire your brain like we're talking about, it's going to be really, really difficult or nearly impossible for a lot of people unless they have that David Goggins, inner David Goggins to push themselves <laughs> to that extreme. But a lot of people don't. Right. And so I, I, it's really important for me to help people realize that true transformation is, is more so on the mental emotional side than just the physical side. And these types of things like meditation and gratitude lists and positive affirmations for me, one, have changed my life, um, not, not in helping me lose weight, but in helping me, like, for example, I went through a divorce about seven, eight years ago, uh, went through a breakup, like I said, you know, a couple of years ago. And these types of life situations that happen can break a lot of people. And if you don't know how to do the work, the inner work, like I'm talking about, it's really hard to pull yourself out of these, these dark places. And so for me, that's why I'm trying to help people realize the importance of becoming more self-aware. And as you become more self-aware, you're more in control of your life. There's a great quote from Anthony DeMello, I think, who said, what you are aware of, you're in control of. And what you're not aware of controls you. I think so many people are stuck in that place of lacking self-awareness where they don't even know why they do. Well, they don't even know like their triggers and what triggers them. They just know how to react to those triggers, where sometimes it's, food, sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's drugs, whatever it is, we distract ourselves from the emotional pain of life with some type of substance or escape, if you will. And we don't really understand why we're doing what we're doing. And then we, we eat the cake or we, we drink alcohol and we think, man, why did I do that? Like, why can't I just, you know, be disciplined? And if you don't learn how to do the inner work to figure it out, you'll never be in control of it because you're not really aware of it yet. Once you become aware of it, now it's easier to control and easier to manage because you're understanding why you do what you do. And so I think that's kind of my hope is to help people build that self-awareness so that they can be more in control of their life um, instead of just kind of floating around unaware of why they do what they do. And then they're stuck in this reactivity type of mindset where they just react to the triggers and the stress. And they're like, fuck it, give me some, give me a drink, give me some, <laughs> give me some, some beer and some pizza and, you know, and then drown your sorrows. And then, you know, nothing ever really gets fixed. So Hopefully that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And society's kind of built that way, isn't it? From the time you're a child, you're not really exposed to any adversity. You're just kind of coddled and everything's easy. And then you get to, say, your teenage years or early 20s, never having been exposed to something that's really physically or mentally taxing. And all of a sudden, the world goes, hey, now you got to figure shit out on your own. And people are like, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Give me a pill. 
and it's just further muting of of the sensation, which then removes us even further from our body, doesn't it? It's alcohol, it's Xanax, it's all these things that are just this constant muting of you know the pain that ultimately we're supposed to be facing or we should be facing. And you know, part of my mission is being a great dad, and and then passing the message on to other dads and moms to say, hey, you know what, coddling your kids isn't doing them a favor. Like intentionally exposing them to hard things in a safe way is an yeah. essential part of life, right? So I think that that's part of it is like, if, if my kids are going to get to their 18th birthday, never having been exposed to something that's difficult, and then all of a sudden I kick them out of the house and go, hey, go to university or college and you're on your own. How do you expect them to possibly succeed, right? They need to learn yeah. independence. They need to learn that they can do it on their own progressively. And, and that, that puts a lot of onus on the parent, doesn't to be intentional about how, what you're subjecting them to, which is again, a whole a huge amount of responsibility that most parents may not be able to handle. Yeah, I think that's great, that's, that's great advice right there. The conversation around self-sabotage came up and, and I'm curious if you have an opinion on that and if it's a similar process, because I, I do work with a lot of high achievers and many times there's a ceiling. I think you and I have talked about this actually. There, there's, a, there's a perceived ceiling of like, Hey, I get here and then I and then I do something and screw it up. And then I get there again, I do something and screw it up. Is that a similar circumstance? Well, there's some overlap, but it's it's a little different. See, most people don't understand the difference between success, failure, and omission. So let me outline that. The second you think that you're successful and you puff yourself up with pride, you depurpose your mission. Yeah. Because what happens, you have what is called a licensing effect. And I hope everybody looks up the licensing effect. If you go out and you eat. Uh, let's let, let's say you go out and work out. You do this incredible workout, and you really feel like, man, I man, I did it. I knocked it out of the ballpark. You automatically, if you feel proud and cocky, you'll automatically give yourself permission to go and overeat that night, drink some wine, take chocolate, sweets. You'll do something because you earned it. You think, and this is called the licensing effect. Anytime you're proud about something, you automatically give yourself permission to do something you're ashamed about hmm. because the pride is inauthentic and the shame is inauthentic, but they balance each other to make true self-worth. Hmm. The elevated self-esteem of pride and superiority complex and the depressed self-esteem of shame and inferiority complex together make up true self-worth. These are polarities. Wow. So the second you do something, you're successful, you automatically do low priority things, depurpose. And the second you think you fear your failure, you go back to high priority things and repurpose. So success, people who are going for success instead of a mission automatically go through cycles and hit plateaus. That's why we're not here to take credit or blame. If you're focusing on credit or blame, I said for years, take no credit, take no blame. Just keep focused on chief aim. The name of the game is thank you. I love you for being able to do what you love every day. So an, an individual is on a mission of building and accomplishing something is different than somebody that's doing it. And the thing, thing as they're getting close to it, that means they're successful. Success is basically a de-processed, de you know, depurposing process. I have no interest in success. I'm not a, people ask me, how did you become successful? I'm not a man of success. I'm a man of a mission, a man on a mission, period. Yeah, that that's such a great explanation. And I feel like that. I feel like for myself, there's no such thing as like wins and losses. There's, it's like, it's just progress. It's like moving, moving. A non-zero sum, non sum game is the key to building wealth. And a zero sum game is the, the key to living off derivatives and gambling with casinos. Like, you know, crypto is a, a zero sum game. Buying quality stock is a non-zero sum game because you're winning, the customer's winning, the product is winning, the shareholders, everybody's winning out of it. 
So the same thing in life, when you're on a mission, you're not into the idea of gain and loss. Charlie Munger has a great thing on, online, if you go and find it, a great line on talking about the difference between people and people on Wall Street and the people that him and Warren, him and Warren are not focused on how to win at the expense of somebody else, which is a mentality of the locker room, he says. He is interested on how he can be of service and make sure that all the people are winning in the game because that's sustainable. If you're cocky and self-righteous, you get narcissistic and you tend to project your values on the people and eventually they're not interested in doing business with you and you get humbled and brought down. And the second you get altruistic and give people exaggerated positions, you'll end up sacrificing your profits. So that one eventually says, damn it, I'm worth more than that. I deserve better than that. So all it's trying to teach you, everything that goes on in your life is trying to teach you how to be authentic. And when you live by your highest values, you're most authentic. That's why if you prioritize your life, you're not there. You transcend the need for gain and loss, transcend the need for success or failure. You're just a man on a mission or a woman on a mission fulfilling what's meaningful to you. And that's way more powerful than the illusions of the amygdala thinking I'm going to get a prey without a predator. Imagine if you're trying to be fit and you get a prey without a predator. You'll gluttony, you'll overeat, and you'll lose your fitness. And you'll increase the probability of a predator trying to look for you because you're fat, you got a lot of calories, and you can't run fast. So overeating, ghrelin and leptin cycles are basically success and failure cycles. That's all they are. You're mm -hmm. exaggerating, then you're minimizing. You're going through yo-yo syndromes. That's the licensing effect. So if you get prey without predator, you don't have fitness. And if you get a predator without prey, you get emaciated and starve and have no fitness. But you put predator and prey together in a balance, an autonomic balance, you get fitness. So a mission uh, based on the highest value with objectivity and pursuing challenges that inspire you instead of trying to avoid challenges, that's where the power is. That's where productivity is. That's where you're going to have performance. That's amazing. You're dropping gems today. So, so great. Um, tell me about a life mastery mindset. So a lot of our audience is, um, including myself, I think we're all often on a quest to find what, what we define as self-mastery, right? Whatever in each individual defines as self-mastery. So I think everyone may have a variable definition of that. And obviously living toward uh, your highest purpose, you know, self-mastery is within that. But I'm curious about your definition of a life, uh, life mastery mindset. I've been focusing on mastering my life since I was 18. Mm -hmm. So I'm 68 in a few months. So I've been doing it for 50 years. I asked, what is mastery? The, the reason I got inspired by this is I watched David Carradine on Kung Fu in 1973, when he had this master at the Shaolin Temple or whatever, and he would call him the master. And I thought, cool, I'd like to be the master. So that's where the word came into my mind, mastery. So I first set out a goal to, I want to master my life. I go, okay, what does that mean? That was first, you know, it sounded cool, but what does it mean? As I went down that alley, I started realizing that I break life into seven areas. And different people use different models. This is not the right model, the wrong model. It's just a model. But I say that we have a spiritual quest, and that is having some inspired mission that's a power that we want to go after. Something that truly inspires us, that's a contribution on the planet, that's actually deeply meaningful to us, that's spiritual to us. And whatever our highest value is, is our spiritual mission. The next one is waking up our genius and our mental capacities to come up with original ideas that serve human beings on this planet and waking up our creativity. That's a, that's a power in our minds. This is like Elon Musk doing something amazing or 
uh, Bill Gates going and creating some new software or, or whatever it might be, or a piece of art, you know. To, to, I, I just got contacted from the son of Picasso the other day, which hmm. is going to be a client. So I was like, whoa, that's a cool one, right? His father was like a genius, right? And that is there. The third one is vocational mastery, where you actually master the art of sustainable fair exchange, doing something you can't wait to get up in the morning and do in a way that serves where other people can't wait to get up in the morning and get it. And the mastery of that is, again, the path of mastery. Then the next one is wealth mastery, where you're having your money work for you. You're not working for it. And you're going to work not because you have to, but because you love to. I don't have to work. I do it because I love to. And people go on the, on the ship and they go, why do you work? You know, you're, you're, Because I love doing this. It's like, I don't have anything else I'd rather be doing than teaching, researching, and writing. That's what I do. I've delegated everything else, so I only do that. The next one is having love and intimacy with somebody that's meaningful. And that, that's not the storybook little box on the prairie, you know, in a suburb, little house or whatever necessarily. It's whatever it means to you. I, I look at everybody as part of my family. Everybody around the world. I live in a big friggin' house. And everybody's part of family. I got a genetic family and a mimetic family, an extended family and a real, you know, biological family. Mm-hmm. It's all family to me. And loving that to me is my is family dynamics and mastering the ability to have equanimity within um, myself and equity between myself and all the people I care about. And intimacy is having pure reflective awareness where you're not too proud or too humble to see what you see in others inside yourself. And you realize that everything you see is, is they, they're not worth putting on pedals or pits, they're worth putting in your heart. To me, that's mastery. Then social mastery is living by priority, exemplifying an authentic pathway, delegating lower priority things, communicating what's inspiring to you as a cause and a calling in a way that has a movement of people that synchronize with that, that want to help you fulfill that. That's a humanitarian cause. That's a social leadership and executive mastery in that area. And then physically, it's the performance at maximum, it's a maximum efficiency and performance and whatever you're going to do, whether it's in sport, whether it's in beauty, or whether it's just daily function. You know, you may want to work in the garden and do a fantastic garden. It may be it. Or it may be me. I'm doing this all day long. I love doing this. And I go from early in the morning till early in the morning sometimes doing this. But it's performing at its peak and not living to eat, but eating to live, to perform and function to perform and have self-governance. If you have something really, really important coming up in the future, you're, you eat totally different than if you have nothing happening. You're just going to, I mean, think of when most people will overeat and blow it and drink and party on a Friday and Saturday, but not on Sunday when they got something meaningful to do on Monday. So if you fill your day with high priority at meaningful things, you will perform in your diet, perform in your exercise in a whole nother level. That's why meaning is the thing that distinguishes us from the animals. Now, to me, mastery is all seven of those areas. When a woman is looking for a man, she's looking for somebody who's fit. And, and, you know, nice abs, nice jaw, nice face, nice smile. And if they were to have a baby with that, they would make, make sure they could look at that baby and go, and go, wow, that's cute. Not something, ooh, I don't want to look at that. They're looking for something that's fit. They're looking for somebody who's intelligent. They're looking for somebody who's ambitious. They're looking for somebody who's got resources, somebody that really wants to be with them, somebody that's socially savvy, and somebody that's inspired by some mission. That's what people are looking for. And so mastery is the empowerment of all seven areas of life and the exemplification of what potential possibilities. Aristotle said, actualizing our potential in all those areas. And to me, that's what I've spent the last 50 years of my life, researching and studying the people who have mastered all those areas and how to do it and try to disseminate that. That's why I try to do that at the break too in all the programs I do. Try to help people gain the the principles and methodologies that will stand the test of time to achieve that. 
There's a lot to unpack there. And as you say, these are your seven areas and there there is room for areas that maybe other people choose to prioritize or fit into those areas. Some people put travel and see the world. I mean, I, I see that too. I want to go to every country on the face of the earth. I've spoken to 170 countries now, still wow. got 50 to go. So I'm still cranking on that. But but the, the, the thing is, is that whatever it means to you is your self-mastery, whatever is true to you. But my observation of human beings, they want to go and empower those areas. They And they may put another little component in one of those areas, or they may have their own extra area. Whatever it is, Whatever is deeply meaningful and inspiring to you that you're dreaming about doing, my experience is the second you achieve it, you keep adding to it. It just keeps growing. So what piece of advice, Dr. Martini, do you have for people who, whether unconsciously or consciously, make themselves, put themselves in the position of the victim of circumstance in the world, right? So the last, gosh, probably since the beginning of time, but certainly uh, relevantly for the last two years. There's been a lot of um, new developments in the world, we'll say, right, politically and otherwise. And uh, it seems that, I mean, this could just be my observation. It seems that more people are placing blame outside of themselves rather than taking ownership for their life. And I'm curious if you have a thought or a piece of advice for people who tend to just take on the victim mentality and point fingers outside of themselves. False attribution bias is common when you're in your amygdala because you need that to survive. You have to assume that's a predator, blame, that's a prey, credit. The brain, the the, the body automatically does that. Epictetus, the philosopher, said it really nicely, and I I could paraphrase it. At first in life, on your journey, you start blaming other people. As you go further on your journey, you start blaming yourself. And when you've finalized your journey and you're a now master, you don't blame anybody. There's nothing to blame. You've discovered the hidden order in your apparent chaos. But at first, you're sitting there disempowered thinking with credit blame systems, you're fantasizing about a hero to save you and you're attracting a villain to make you grow up. (laughs) As long as you're addicted to support, you attract a challenge to make you break your addiction so you can finally grow up because maximum growth occurs at the border of support and challenge. And so when you blame things and give credit to things, false attribution bias keeps you from owning what you see in them inside yourself. I believe it's in Romans 2.1 and in the biblical writings that said that Whatever, whenever you blame somebody, just know that whatever you're blaming, it's a reflection of you. You do the same thing. And so when you finally own what you see in them, you blame them, then you blame yourself, and then you realize, oh, you ask, what's the benefit of what they've done? In the breakthrough experience, when I do the Demartini method, I ask, what specific trait action, in action do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you despise most, that you want to blame them for, that you have a false attribution bias on, and you're going to say, they caused me pain. Then you ask them and get down specific in what actually is their behavior. Then you go, all right, now go inside yourself. Go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the same behavior to somebody else. Where was it? When was it? Who is it to? And who perceived you that way? And don't stop doing that until you own what you see in them inside you 100% to the same degree, quantitative and qualitatively. The moment you do, you stop the blame on them and you now have blame on them and you, and then you go in there and find out what's the benefit to you of them doing that. Go to a moment when they did that, how did it serve you? And you stack up the advantages and benefits instead of having the wizard of the ages with the aging process, you find it right now by looking. And when you find the benefits to you, you realize, wow, thank you. And then if you go and find out the benefits and when you did it, you go, thank you to yourself. 
And then you have nobody to blame. So you start out blaming others, then you blame yourself, and then you blame nobody because you finally realize that if there was nothing to blame, nothing to give credit to, just something that's a reflection of something that you already have. I always say at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. At the level of the existence of the senses, things appear to be missing in us. And anything we're too proud or too humble to admit we see in other people is deflected and it's disowned and it's our disempowered state. When we own them all and realize we're hero and villain, we're the saint and the sinner, we have all those behaviors. We have little to judge in other people. And then we're now ready to master our life. So, Phil, I'd love to hear from you what you were doing that was so revolutionary. Obviously, I'd love to hear kind of how you guys connected also, but, you know, kind of rewinding behind what Barry was doing, saying, like, what was it that he was so enamored by that caught, you know, his attention? Ultimately, what led you to that? Because obviously, if you're doing something so unique, you had a unique thought process. Yeah, you know, I think part of the problem was that because it was unique, it was it was very hard for the rest of let's say, organized psychology or psychiatry to actually connect to it. He, I think because of his instincts, he has tremendous intelligence, instincts, and tremendous work ethic. He has the greatest work ethic of every per, any person wow. I've ever met in my life. So that's just by way of saying he was able to recognize something, I think. And also he's a practical person. Anyway, here's what happened. I, I was... Um, I went through the New York City um, uh, medical establishment training. I, I did my re- residency in psychiatry in New York in a place called Metropolitan Hospital. Which, if, you, if you've ever seen the movie um, Hospital, that it was filmed actually where I trained. So it was a um, it was a fantastic training, um, but th- but it had to end at some point. At the end of it, they started to give you patient, individual patients that you treat for, on, your, on your own. That, you weren't allowed to do that until the very last year of your residency. So I started to treat these people, and right away I had a problem with it. The problem was nobody really told me exactly what to do, but I knew one thing, which is people would come to the sessions, they'd leave the session, and they'd leave it without anything tangible to give them hope. They, they leave the session without a sense of where we were going. They leave the session without um, homework that they could do in between. Mostly they left the sessions feeling just about as badly as when they walked in, sometimes worse. I didn't like it. Not that I'm such a great guy or such an altruist, um, but as the thing went forward and, and it became a career, you know, a profession, I couldn't take people's money. And I was happy to earn money, but I couldn't take it if they weren't getting something. You know, I, I felt like I was, I was um, selling air, so to speak. So um, without um, wasting time at all, the fights I had with my supervisors and all that stuff, I decided that I was going to try to, before, before anyone could leave my office after a session, I was going to try to give them something. Now, what does that something mean? It means that we try, try to delineate the symptomatic problem they were having without, without um, so much uh, attention to the cause. Um, and then I would try, um, I would invent something in my mind. Like here's the classic one that I invented, which is people are avoidant. Probably more than any, other than the anxiety, avoidance is probably the biggest problem that a shrink faces. 
So, and avoidance has to do with fear, right? So I, I developed this thing, I call it the reversal of desire because the, the, normal, the normal average person's desire is to avoid fear, to avoid anything that's uncomfortable, right? So I, I, I developed this tool, basically it's called the reversal of desire. So instead of the typical desire, wanting to avoid fear, I made them go right into the fear. And there's a tool and steps to that and everything. Um, so that was the very beginning of it. And, and it worked a little bit. Um, if you want, I mean, I could tell you some of the background because one of the interesting things about me is that I, I was able to take like this particular thing about the reversal of desire. I got the idea for that tool when I was, when I was in the 10th grade. I was like, I weighed about 92 pounds. And I was, I was like the youngest kid in all high school. And we had a mechanical drawing. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a draft. Yep. So they, anyway, so I'm, t- I'm, I'm like the worst draw draft, draft, draftsman you, you could possibly imagine. So they sit this kid next to me, and the kid, the kid sits down, and I was 13. He looked like he was about 19 and a half. And it so happens that he was, he was a star running back, not, not only for our whole high school, but in the whole city. He was first team all city, halfback, whatever they called it. And at first I was scared to even look at this kid. He was so much older. You know, he had forearms like as big as my chest. That, that's what it looked like. Anyway. But we, neither of us could do the mechanical drawing. We just couldn't do it. So we started to bullshit and talk to each other. And this guy, obviously, he, the only thing he wanted to talk about was football. And he told me something that was amazing. He said, um, you, um, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I am not the most talented halfback in the city. I'm not the fastest. I'm not the most elusive. But he says, I have one advantage over all the other running backs. And he, he says, I like to get hit. I like it. And I'm looking at him like he had lost his fucking mind. You know, I, I was intimidated enough. And then this guy, it was like the most animalistic. And he says, I, I call for the ball from scrimmage on the first play. I went right at a linebacker or a defensive and whoever it is. And he, I don't try to avoid him. He pops me and I'm, I'm on my ass. And he says, when I get up from that hit, I felt like I could conquer the world. And even though I was 13 years old, I said, hmm, this has got to be something to this. And this one of the things stuck in my mind. Now cut to 20 years later, I, I began to experiment with that. And it worked right away. As I was um, developing that tool, I realized I had a talent for this. For, for, and, I, and I would make it a point to demand of myself that everybody that, that would leave, they would leave with a tool. I mean, there's a million of them. I, Maybe we'll go over some of them. Um, but that's how it started. Um, all right, that's enough about that. Bella, uh, I love that. That's a great story. It was actually going exactly where I wanted to go. I'm curious what it was about you at such a young age that drew you to the desire to help people. It's not a very common thing that a 13-year-old would be drawn um, to. What are you, psychic or something? <laughs> When I was nine years old, um, I had a brother that died. Um, I was nine, he was three. Um, and my parents, um, he died suddenly of a rare kind of yeah, kidney cancer. My parents were not religious. They had nothing in terms of dealing with it. So the whole family collapsed. 
out of that collapse, I became the leader of the family at age nine. And I, I was a whole other story about my father. I became his psychiatrist. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I, I seemed to have, I had an optimistic, soothing presence. Let me put it that way. Well, here's the thing. My father wanted me to be a doctor anyway, but after my brother died, he really wanted me to be a doctor. Um, and because it was, it was New York, you know, there were various violent things happening, one of which was um, one of my friends was thrown down an elevator shaft. He, he lived, so we went to visit him in the same hospital, Metropolitan Hospital, where I was trained, just by coincidence. When we're walking out, of the hospital after having seen him, my father turns around, he points to the hospital and he says, that's the only profession. He goes, that's the only, which means it doesn't matter what else you do in life, you're a fucking failure unless you become a doctor. So my, my younger brother died, so that was part of the, my, my life's mission was, would be to fight death. I mean, now it sounds insane. Um, and then I had this experience down the elevator shaft where it was reinforced. Um, the funniest thing of all of it is that my family's psychiatry was nothing. It was completely looked down on. It wasn't real medicine. But my father, to his credit, he, he said, you, I'm going to pay for medical school. You just have to graduate. You can take whatever you want. And so I took psychiatry. Well, I felt plenty guilty about it because I enjoyed it. It was the only thing in medicine I, I really enjoyed. Did that answer the question? I, I don't remember. It very, very much answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to have, uh, maybe Barry, you could kind of walk down the path of telling us a little bit more about the reversal of desire, because it sounds like for both of you, that maybe is the most impactful tool. Yeah, it's certainly one of the most impactful tools. Just to back up for a moment and fill in, you know, some of what Phil was talking about, you know, up until the time I met Phil, I understood what traditional psych psychology was about, which was, it was premised on a false premise. And the false premise was, in order to overcome problems, you have to dive deeply into what caused the problem. Now, if just a moment thinking about that, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, you don't need to know how your toilet got stuck in order to unstick the toilet. And yet, when it came to the human psyche, traditional psychology believed that you needed to delve into causation in order to solve the problem. When I met Phil, it was such a revolution in my thinking because what he said was, no, you don't need to understand it. And even if you do understand it, that's not actually going to solve the problem for you. What you need are forces that don't feel like they're available to you when you're experiencing the problem, which gets us to the problem of avoidance. When you're afraid to do something or when you can't get yourself to, to, you can't discipline yourself to sit down and write or do a task or write an email or anything that, you know, we all avoid a, a wide, wide variety of things. What's happening inside of you is that you're a little bit afraid of the pain that is involved in moving forward. Whenever you move forward and do something, even if it's something you want to do, there's a little bit of pain and discomfort attached to that. A, because you don't know what's going to happen and B, because it requires effort and effort 
you know, we're all lazy. We'd rather not expend effort than expend it, okay? Which means that in order to move forward, you need to change your relationship to pain. You need to accept that pain is actually part of life, that pain is actually part of moving forward. I mean, I see you nodding. I'm sure that you're incredibly familiar with this as a trainer because you got to get people to face pain all day, every day. So the, the secret of the reversal of desire is that it takes our normal desire, which is to avoid pain at all costs, and it reverses it. It says, bring on the pain. Are we saying bring on the pain because we're masochists? No, we're saying bring on the pain because pain is an absolutely necessary part of life and you can't move forward without facing it. And by desiring it, you shift the direction that you're moving in. Generally, we move away from pain. When you desire something, you move toward it. And the moment you start to move toward pain, something really magical happens. I'm amazed even now, after I've used the tool for 35 years, you move toward pain and you feel free and excited to embrace it, strangely enough. You don't feel pain. You feel excitement, euphoria almost. So that's the way the reversal of desire works. Yeah, and that, that's what I call the law of pain, which is if you confront pain and go into it, it actually diminishes. If you back away from it and try to avoid it, it gets bigger. And that's the law. You can try it in small things, big things. Where so, so it sounds like there's a bit of the New Yorker in, in this uh, tool, right? There's the, the a bit of like the, you know, I hear kind of the New Yorker coming out. It feels like the New Yorker, like, bring it on. I love pain. Pain sets me free. That little bit of like New Yorker's edge. Do you think it was part of that, that kind of uh, initiated this tool, we'll say? I do. In a way, I mean, in the most superficial way. I mean, yeah. he took it and ran with it, so to speak. But yeah, yes, it was, it was the, the main thing was schmuck. If you're going to take people's money and time and claim you're a doctor or whatever, you better deliver something. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an ethos. And I never thought of it as a New York thing. But, yeah, it, it is a New York thing. No question. Uh, yeah, in California, we would just talk it to death. <laughs> <laughs> there, there may not be that New York swagger if it was in California, right? It'd be kind of like the, the soft, like cushy landing rather than like yeah. the, we're going right through it. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day, and I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.